Today I want to speak to you on the title of Using Your Sixth Sense. Using Your Sixth Sense. And uh, it will come up there eventually if you press the button. There we are. Using Our Sixth Sense. I want to read to you a scripture from Mark chapter 8. It will come up on the screen. They came to Bethsaida. Sorry, I've got some feedback from the monitors here. Can somebody do something about this? Because it's bouncing back at me. That's it. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he spat on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Or as uh, one version puts it, neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. Father, we pray that we will see clearly through this message. Amen. Now, you may not realize this, but you have a sixth sense. That's not just the title of a film. That is actually something that is real in you. Now, we're all familiar with our five senses. Here they are coming up on the screen. Touch, taste, sound, smell, sight. And we're all very, very aware of those. That is how we experience the world around us. So much comes to us through those senses. I remember my student days, we had a guy living on our landing, and he was a big sportsman, hockey and running. And when you opened the door to his room, one of your senses was instantly activated. He had a pile of running kit unwashed in one corner, and a pile of hockey kit unwashed in another corner. And guess which sense was operating from the moment you opened the door? I mean, it hit you, this solid wall of olfactory disturbance, if I can call it that, just came across your nostrils. It was, to quote a more modern word, minging. I mean, it stank. And this is how it is with our, our senses. And we're very, very, very aware of them. Another guy where we, we, we um, well, actually, our hearing was very much disturbed in our student days. We lived in this big house and there was somebody in the attic room above us and people in the room below us and people in the room across the hall and people on the side. And they all liked music of a different sort. And they all played it loud and it all met in our room. So we had American kind of punk rock from below and Wagner, can you believe it, Wagner, real heavy stuff from above. And then in those days it was, can I dare say this in this, Tamla Motown, that kind of American sort of stuff, hitting us from across, and none of it sort of really goes very well together. Our hearing was very much challenged in those days, and we uh, experience the world in all kinds of ways through our senses, just like we all do, and we're very aware of those, but I wonder how many of people are really aware of their sixth sense, and here's how it works. When I talk to people, and when I have talked to people over the years and said to them, what would it take for you to believe in God? 
then what people tend to do is they tend to start thinking of their five senses. And one person says, well, I'd like to hear him speak to me. And they're talking about a voice in their ears. And somebody else says, well, I'd like to see him. And somebody else says, well, I'd like to uh, touch him or him to touch me so that I knew that it was real and so on. So when I've asked people and said, well, what kind of thing would you like to see to prove that God is real? That's when it gets interesting. Because one person says, well, I would like to see God do an incredible miracle, like raise somebody from the dead. And their mate says, no, that could be fate, couldn't it? They could just be sort of, you know, putting that on. And somebody else says, well, I'd like to see God do an incredible miracle to open the English Channel like he did the Red Sea, and we could walk through on dry land. That'd be quite useful for us on Wednesday, actually, wouldn't it? It would save us the going, going through the Channel Tunnel, you know. Um, I think I'll be looking at the water thinking, I hope God just keeps it held back until we get to the other side. And somebody else says, no, no, that's not the kind of miracle. I wouldn't believe that. Even if I saw it, I would say that was something else. And somebody else says, well, I want to see God. So you say to them, well, okay, what do you want to see? How would you know it's God? Well, what would you expect to see? Well, somebody says, it would just be a great big bright white light. That's all you'd see. Well, how do you know that's God then? Or it'd be an old man in a chair on a throne, you know, the big white beard, and somebody else says, no, no, you, you can't see God like that. So when you actually ask people what they want to believe, they all disagree and they all differ. And here's what it says to us. Our five senses are not a reliable means or even a very good means of experiencing God and the things of God. They're there for us to experience this world, but when it comes to experiencing God, we need another sense, our sixth sense. And thank God, he's put in every person the ability to have a sixth sense. And where, if we're looking for faith, if we're looking to find out more about God, that's how you'll find out about him, through your sixth sense. And if you're telling somebody how they need to believe in God, you need to explain this to them, that it's not something they'll see or hear. There may be echoes of that or some part of that, but really, the first thing that has to be activated is our sixth sense. And the problem is, we are not very aware of it, even though we actually use it quite a lot. So what is our sixth sense? Well, we've all got one, and it's called this. It's called faith. In Espanol, la fe. See? Faith. And this kind of faith is not some kind of dreamy wish or vague idea. This is a strong conviction that God really does exist. And I'll tell you how this works. One of the strongest convictions I ever had that God exists. Harris, could you come and help me here a moment, please? It happened like this. It's that hand I want. Come stand over here. When she was born, I stared. I was just staring at her little fingernail here like this. And it was amazing and wonderful and perfect. And Sally was holding her. And all I could do was stare at this little tiny, tiny fingernail. It was a lot smaller than this. And it was just there and ready and perfect in every detail. And I knew, because I knew, because I knew, that this is not the product of some 
monkey turned into man through an evolutionary process. I don't care what Dawkins and all the rest tell us. Faith told me that little fingernail came from a God who cares about every detail of our lives. And no scientific book will prove me otherwise or convince me otherwise because faith speaks where sight and hearing and smell and so on can't speak. Thank you, Carol. Sorry to embarrass you like that. It's got nice fingernails. Um, see, it's knowing. It's being sure. Now, you can be as sure with faith as you are with your senses. Now, think of a meal you've had that you've not enjoyed. Think of your least favorite food. Is there a food you really do not like? Come on, let's have a few ideas. What? Brussels sprouts. Let's see a vote for Brussels sprouts. How many people don't like Brussels sprouts here? All the young uns. Look at that, you see. I don't like them either. Um, no, no, I like them actually. Brussels sprouts is an acquired taste, isn't it? You get used to it over the years. It's an adult thing to, to like Brussels sprouts. Okay, well, we'll pray for you guys later. A- anybody else? Let's have some unfavorite. Ruth. Tripe. Okay, I'm with you on tripe. I've done it. I've tried it. I've never done it again. Toifu. No, oh, I don't like it either. I mean, some of you love all that veggie stuff for me, but me, no, no, thank you. That's a... Okay, anything else that really hot? Camembert. Oh, you know, he's got, he speaks French and he doesn't like French cheese. Can you imagine that? I mean, there's something genetically wrong here that he speaks this wonderful language and he doesn't like the food from one of the best food countries in the world. We're going to have to definitely pray for you for deliverance from that. But, you know, when you taste something horrible... You know it. Now, Karis, I need you back again. I'm really sorry. This is confession time. I have given my daughter the most horrible things to eat in the past. Turn around. I made her eat part of a sheep's head. The ears, the cheek, the lips, and the tongue. All true, isn't it? Now, you know it when that happens. I mean, it just sends a message through your taste buds this is horrible. <laughs> so I'm just called you up here to say, please would you forgive your father for a terrible upbringing. And if you can... <laughs> Sorry? I thought you were going to make me do it again. No, no, I'm not going to make you do it again. Do you know what they did to me one day? I was out camping. They produced a tin of escargot, snails. And they said, well, you're the big outdoor survival type. They opened the tin, and in front of all these youth, I had to eat this tin of snails, they were absolutely horrible. They weren't like nicely prepared in butter or garlic or anything like that. They were just out the tin in salt water. I tell you, if anybody tells you snails taste good, at that form they taste absolutely disgustingly horrible. Now you know that, don't you? You don't need anybody to tell you. If somebody comes along and says, well, that tastes okay, your Brussels sprouts are fine, you say, well, you may say that, but I know it tastes horrible. And that's how faith works. Faith is an assurance inside of us that we know because we know because we know. And it's as real as tasting Brussels sprouts or whatever you don't like. It's as real as smelling that football kit that you may not like. And it's as real as... uh, those things in our lives as our, as our other senses. Now, it's by this sixth sense of faith that we know God is there, that we know He's real, that we know He is who the Bible says He is, and that we know that spiritual things are real. 
We know that healing is real. We know that forgiveness of sins is real. We know that heaven is real. We know that hell is real. We know that there are spiritual forces and powers in this world. This is all real. But you don't detect it by measurement or logic or sight or your senses. It's detected by this other sense we have called faith. And the Bible says this about faith. You know it very well in Hebrews 11.6. It says, whoever comes to God must believe that God is Not just that he exists, is what it says in some version. God does more than existing. He is who the Bible says he is. He is as good as the Bible says he is. He is that kind, that loving, that gracious, that full of mercy and compassion. uh, He's like the father of the prodigal son who takes the son back home. He's that welcoming. He's that rewarding. And it goes on to say, believes that he is like this. And he rewards those who diligently seek him. Can you imagine some people? Now, I see this in the paper from time to time. There is one week left to claim £17 million on the lottery. I mean, I know you shouldn't be doing that in the first place, but, you know, if you are, for goodness sake, claim the winnings and tie... No, but anyway. uh, But do you understand? How could somebody get the winning lottery ticket for millions? And they put the number out and say, somebody is out there. And they don't come and get the money. I mean, do you wish, well, if you don't want to go and collect the money, give me the ticket and I'll do something useful with it. Then I won't have sinned by gambling, but I can at least collect the money and do something good with it. That's the most Christian version of all of getting the lottery. <laughs> can you understand that? So, a reward is there to be had. And God is that good. Now, you are all people of faith today. Did you know that? Turn to the person next to you and say, you are a man or woman of faith. I didn't say, I didn't mean you to put it quite like Some of you are just being awkward. Now, here's, here's how. Did anybody check the chair before they sat down? Did anybody say, I'm just going to try this chair to make sure it doesn't collapse underneath me? You all just sat down. That's, that's faith. That's all the faith you need to believe in God. See, your sixth sense was working. You believed it would hold your weight. And that's how it works in spiritual terms. That's all we have to do is to believe God is like that. Now, three things from this story. Because here Jesus is dealing with a man, and he has to bring him to a place of faith. And this man isn't there at the beginning of the story. So Jesus is working in his life to do this uh, amazing miracle for him. But when he meets the guy, the guy needs some help. So the first thing is this. It says in that story that we read, Jesus took him out of the town. And the principle here is this. The people we live with can affect our level of faith. See, to get him healed, he takes him out of the town. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us that the spiritual atmosphere in that town was not a good atmosphere. It tells us that the atmosphere in that town that those people created by being together was not encouraging for that man's faith. And this man was never, ever, ever going to get healed if he stayed amongst those people and he picked up on and absorbed their atmosphere and attitude. So Jesus has to take him out of the town. And we can ask ourselves, why is it that in this town there's a different atmosphere that's difficult for faith? than, say, other towns where Jesus was quite happy to stay in the town and work there. What was going on in this town? Well, here's a picture of it. This is 
um, Bethsaida. Now, we were there several weeks ago. We were actually standing looking at that sign and looking at this, this scene here. You can see the ruins of the town. Now, about eight kilometers or about five miles away, there is another town called Capernaum. And in those days, the level of the lake has changed. But in those days, they were both fishing towns on the very top pointy end of the Sea of Galilee. And you can, you can see one from the other. You get in the coach, it's a short drive, you wiggle around some roads, and you end up in this other place, Bethsaida. Now, Jesus was happy enough to do miracles in Capernaum, but at Bethsaida, he didn't do the miracles in the town. He took the man outside of the town. And here's what happens. When you go to look at the ruins there, you will see a difference between the two towns. In Capernaum, the rooms are small, the houses are small. This is not the posh end of town. It's ordinary, basic, working-class fishermen folk of that day. But when you go to Bethsaida and you see places like this, the rooms are bigger, the houses are bigger, there are businesses there that they did not have back in Capernaum. Here they had a a wine merchant who actually pressed grapes and had a big house and made wine on the spot. And uh, they don't have that in the ruins in Capernaum. It's much smaller and more basic and down to earth. So... Here's a curious thing. Three of Jesus' disciples were actually from Bethsaida. It says in 1 John 44, Philip was from Bethsaida. And it says it's the city of Andrew and Peter. So a quarter of Jesus' 12 originally lived in this town. And what did they do? They moved down the road. Not very far, just eight kilometers, but they left that place and they went to Capernaum. And you notice it was in Capernaum that they met with Jesus. You notice it was while they were working from there, they got the call to follow Jesus, and they had the faith to leave everything and follow him. Do you know what? If they'd have stayed in Bethsaida, the same atmosphere that was giving this guy a problem would not have uh, helped Andrew and Peter and Philip either. Now, why is that happening? Why is that happening? Well, here's the second thing, Jesus, we can learn from the story. Jesus had to lay hands on him twice. Jesus had to lay hands on him twice. I think we've got another slide for that, please. The second one. He says, once more, Jesus laid hands on him. Now, where else do we read in the New Testament that Jesus laid hands on somebody twice? Where else? Nowhere. Nowhere in all the four Gospels do we ever read of any other occasion where Jesus has to lay hands on him twice. Why here? Does it tell you that the Son of God, the most amazing miracle worker there has ever, ever been, The Lamb of God who walks on earth in this town, even though he's got the guy to the edge of the town, he has to lay hands on him twice. Does that tell you something about the the level of faith there was not that's different than all these other places? Can you see how important this is? There's a lesson here to help us in our faith. And this town had an effect. Now, why was it? Why was this town having such an effect on this guy? 
The picture, by the way, is from a waterfall in Gedi, another place we visited where David camped out in the wilderness when he was on the run from Saul. I, I had a particularly good spiritual principle for putting it here, but I can't remember what it was, but it's a nice picture anyway. Now, here's what I think is happening. The more we get our five senses swamped with the things of this world, the less we tend to hear and tune into our sixth sense in terms of the things of the spiritual world. In other words, our faith. The richer and posher and more comfortable and more well-off and more entertained and more amused and more materialistic we become in our society, the more our five senses get swamped. And the more those five senses get swamped, the, the harder it is for our sixth sense to be exercised and really tune us into God. And that's what was happening in these two towns. Bethsaida was a posh town. They had plenty. They had loads more. They were doing financially better. But you know, Peter and Philip and Andrew, for some reason, they didn't want to stay in that place. There was something about that place that said, even though this is a posher, smarter, nicer, um, more in touch with the world, more God it all kind of place, we're leaving. We're getting out of here and we're going down the road and we're putting our lot in with those people over there. Isn't that interesting? Even before Christ came along, something was at work in their lives to get them out of that faithless atmosphere. And the same will be true for us today. And the more, let's take one sense, the more our eyes tell us, the less our faith is able to tell us. Maybe that's why in, in, in our tradition, when we pray, we were taught at school, in the school assemblies, when they still did those wonderful things, let's close our eyes, put our hands together. We often go on our knees. Now, in, in other parts of the world, they don't do that. In, in, in Israel, you put your hands apart. You don't necessarily kneel. I mean, that, that, sometimes they did that in the Bible, but kneeling became much more of a thing in the New Testament and then in the church. But closing your eyes to pray... Maybe that's why we do it in our culture. Because we're so swamped by what we see that our faith reduces. Our sixth sense doesn't work very well. But when we close our eyes, then our sixth sense, our faith starts to work. And it's interesting, isn't it? The only person who's come to Jesus for healing is who? A man who can't see. All the rest of them in the town who can, they are swamped. And their faith is reduced. Right, right down to a tiny, tiny pinpoint as a result of it. But this guy has at least got some kind of chance. And as far as we know from the New Testament, this is the only miracle Jesus actually did for somebody in Bethsaida. Doesn't that tell you something interesting about how faith works? The third thing that Jesus uh, tells him that's uh, really important for our understanding about faith in this passage is this. Jesus tells him, not to go back. Don't go back into the town. This is the Dead Sea in Israel. This is the mud. And they slime you with the mud. It's supposed to be full of salts that can rejuvenate your skin and make you look 20 years younger. As you can see, I spent about four seconds in the Dead Sea. Uh, it was too stingy and too unpleasant and too painful for me. I really didn't like it at all. But um, this guy has been caked in the mud. 
And sometimes people do it to themselves. Sometimes other people do it to you. One of our party was in the water. He was just about to get out. And some of the, some of the guys from in there, they just started slapping this mud all over him. And they, they made him look like that. Now, that's a picture of what we're going to talk about in this third point here. Jesus says to the man, don't even go into the town. Now, why would that be such a problem? Because often Jesus tells people, go show yourself to the priest. Or he said to like the guy who was delivered from a 6,000 demons, go tell everyone in your town the good things the Lord has done for you. But in this case, he says, don't go back into the town. Now, why is that? He tells the man to go home. But at the same time, he says, don't go back into the town. Now, that could be a bit... How do you go home but not go back into the town? My guess is this guy probably lived on the edge of the town. You'll find in another part in Luke chapter 9 that when Jesus does the feeding of the 5,000, it said he'd gone to Bethsaida, but actually he never went into Bethsaida. He just went into the area around and next to the town. And we, we were there on, that, on the countryside that's just outside of Bethsaida. That's where he did this incredible miracle of teaching the, the people on the hillside and then feeding 5,000 of them. But he didn't do it in or from Bethsaida. Something about that place is affecting the faith that Jesus needs to work in and get working in people to see the miracle power of God released. So Jesus tells him, he says, don't, what he's effectively saying is this, don't go back into that atmosphere. Don't return to that unbelieving five senses swamped place where people are full of cynical questions and full of difficulties that will drag you down. Uh, Don't go back to that place where the sixth sense isn't operating. Some of the older versions put it like this. They say, don't speak to anyone in the town or don't even tell anyone in the town. Now, why is that? Surely the guy should say, hey, look, I was blind, but now I can see. God, the Lord has healed me. This Jesus, he's the Messiah. Jesus said, don't go and tell anyone that. Why? I'll tell you why. Because even when a man comes with that incredible miracle in his life, when he meets this atmosphere of skepticism and questioning and cynicism, ah, you're not really healed. It was coincidence. What do you think that's going to do for his faith? It's going to start to make him doubt. A few hours earlier, a few days earlier, he was with the Lamb of God himself. At that time, he received his incredible healing. And yet, their conversation can help rob him of the marvelous things God has done in his life. Can you see that? And it also says, don't tell anyone. It's It's our own conversation as well. When we get into conversation of certain types with certain kinds of people, with certain kinds of spirits, in certain ways, do you know it drains the faith out of you? You ever have one of those conversations? You feel full of faith, and by the end of it, you feel drained. Wow. I came to witness to you and bring faith to you. All you've done is drain the faith out of me. And Jesus is saying, don't go back into that atmosphere. Now I've got you out of it. Now I've coached you in your faith to help you to move in faith, don't let their speech and their atmosphere and their way of living and their connection with this world, having their senses swamped, don't let that pull you down and rob you of your incredible reward. So the principle here is this. What we talk about can make 
or break our faith. So how are we going to apply this word? Well, I want to apply it through the use of one word, and that's the word same. The same. Those are Britain's most identical twins. They really do look the same, don't they? And here's a little confession for you. I used to think, and I don't know why I thought this, but I did. I used to think that when Jesus came along, he came along with a son of God brought from heaven kind of faith that was so powerful that the minute he walked up to somebody and said, you, that the faith would come out of his fingertip like a little invisible ray beam and zap that person and suddenly they would have 100% faith and they would just fall over and their cancer or their deafness or their lame, whatever, it would be healed. And then I would think when he said to us, go get people healed, we would come along with this other kind of faith this struggling kind of faith, this difficult kind of faith that we have to move in on some lesser level and we'll do our best. And maybe if we get men walking like trees, that's, as, that's good enough for the day. By the way, it's okay to pray for people more than once. That's what that tells us. Did you know that? If you pray for somebody and they get part of their healing, praise God. Pray for them again and again. It's all right to keep praying. Even Jesus had to do it once. But it tells you something about our age and the kind of faithlessness in our atmosphere that we live in, doesn't it? If we have to keep praying all that time. You see, it's not like that because Jesus moved in exactly the same faith that we have to move in today. And we can move in exactly the same faith that Jesus moved in in those days. There is no difference. So what he's doing with this guy here is the same as what we have to do. And what's happening here is just how it will be uh, for us in our age today. It doesn't work any differently for us now than it did for Jesus then. Jesus' hometown rejected him. You notice he had to move as well. That atmosphere had no faith in him. They actually threw him out. It still hasn't changed. It says when he went back there, he could do no mighty miracle because of their unbelief. Hold on a minute. Jesus can do anything. He's the son of God. Point his finger and pfft, it's it, done. But it says the lack of faith in Nazareth, Nazareth limited Jesus. One of the gospels says, except he laid his hands on a few sick people and made them well. I thought it's pretty good actually. I'd be quite happy to, to lay hands on a few sick people and make them well, wouldn't you? But Jesus wanted to do so much more than that. But their faith or lack of it limited what he could do. So do you see, Jesus is operating under the same kind of faith and the same spiritual rules and laws and principles that we operate today. And we can learn from him, and if he can do it, we can do it. That's the message that's, that's here today. But in order to do it, we have to do it like him and be aware like he was aware. So here's some things that are the same. There was the same atmosphere that we need today that he had then. Have a think about where you live. Have a think about the people we live with and amongst the people we're surrounded by in our lives, the things we're surrounded by that create the atmosphere. Do you ever feel like maybe, just maybe, it's draining your faith and not doing it such, such, a, such a great favor? 
Do you ever feel like you're living in Bethsaida in our current world? Do you ever feel you're living in a world that's focused on the five senses and doesn't use its sixth sense very well, if at all? I've told before the story of the boy and the angel, but I can't think of a better one here. Where this young boy, we were told this story, by the way, at a Bible camp some years ago by John Paul Jackson. And the young boy, I think he was about nine or ten at home, and the family are a spirit-filled believer's family. And the boy says to his parents, Mum and Dad, I saw angels coming in out of the house yesterday. Wonderful. Now, what do you say to your kids when they say that? <laughs> Dear, very nice. <laughs> um, and they said, really? Well, that's, that's, that's interesting. Tell us about them. So they did. They said, well, how come your mummy and daddy don't see them? Because we're Christians. We're filled with the Spirit too. So he said, well, I don't know, but I'll ask them. So the next day he said, well, I saw the angels again last night and I asked them why you don't see them. And they gave me the answer. And they said, really, dear, what's that? The angel says you watch too much television. That's the truth. You see, we can plug into an atmosphere that's so five senses orientated that it does not sow to our sixth sense. That it swamps us in that area and our faith is not stirred and reduced. uh, uh, Not stirred as a result, but reduced. Wow, I found that story compelling and chilling and really struck me in my own heart. Wouldn't it be a shame to miss the angels coming in and out of our house because I'd set the atmosphere by some other means. And there are many things like, uh, like, today, like that today and we all need to ask ourselves, what atmosphere am I living in? What atmosphere am I setting myself? What atmosphere am I, am I, part, am I being party to? And will it work on me like Bethsaida did on those guys in those days? Because if it does, then we need to do something about it. We need to get out from under that atmosphere. We need to change the spiritual atmosphere so that our sixth sense can really take off and then we can see wonderful things from the Lord. Here's another thing that's uh, the same. It's the same atmosphere. It's the same challenge. What can we do in the midst of a faithless generation in society? Well, let me give you a couple of things. First of all, use your sixth sense as often as possible. One thing that has not changed over the years is men's advertisements. Now, I'll tell you what I mean. As a wee Ben, in sort of eight, nine, ten years old, I used to get from the US the original DC comics. You know the things you're all going to films now and say, isn't this wonderful? Superman and Batman and, and Daredevil. Well, I, I read that original stuff. We got hold of them in this country. They were several months out of date, but they used to come. And in the back used to be an advert. And it was there in every magazine by a guy called Charles Atlas. Now, Steve's going to know who this is because he's much older than he, he, he sort of looks in, in, in sort of culture. He's, he's, sort of, he's a good scholar of the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, really. And Charles Atlas was this muscle man type before Arnie came along. And his advert used to say on the top of it, you too can have a body like mine. And then you'd see in the next picture this guy who's a 10-stone skinny weakling, all sort of like this. After three months doing Charles Atlas's power stretchy thing with these springs, I too have a body like his. And he looked like an 11 stone skinny weakling, but at least he was a bit heavier. No, but seriously, you know, and they would put these adverts on. You can be just like me. Now, faith is like that. The more you exercise it, the bigger it gets. And muscles are like that. The more you exercise them, the bigger they get. So exercise your sixth sense as much as you possibly can, and you'll see it grow. The more you use it, 
the more it will grow. You know the old phrase, use it or lose it. It really is like that when it comes to our sixth sense. And secondly, regularly remove ourselves from that environment. Jesus went to Bethsaida to to minister to there because he had compassion on the people, but he never lived there, never stopped there. And that's how we have to be in this world. We can go to people and go to certain places to minister, but we don't live there. Isn't it interesting? Jesus says to us that when you pray, you need to go aside and close the door. When you close the door in your prayer closet, you are removing yourself from the atmosphere of this world and you're plugging into another atmosphere that's by the sixth sense and will encourage your sixth sense of faith. And the final thing is be ready and prepared to instruct people on their need for faith and how their faith should grow. Jesus had to instruct this guy. And let me show you how you do this. If you're witnessing to somebody who's sharing the faith with them, you'll have to tell them how to grow some faith if they want to believe, if their faith is too small. John, come and, come and join me for a moment. We were very privileged to have a healing evangelist live, uh, be in our house sometimes. His son lived with us for a while. And one day he, he came to a meeting and he prayed for people. And afterwards we went home and, and I got the debrief. I thought, this is going to be very interesting. This is one of the foremost miracle ministries in the country today. I, want to, I get a chance to ask him all the questions. So I said, well, what was going on in the meeting today? And straight away he was, he was really happy with all the people that got healed. He focused on the ones that didn't. I, thought, isn't it? I said to him, isn't it great all these people that got healed? He said, yeah, yeah, but that one didn't. I said, yeah, but be happy with all those. He said, no, no, that one didn't. And I learned something about these guys, and they really pushed through on the difficult cases. It's a challenge to, to faith, to see. You know, he didn't want to leave somebody seeing men walking like trees. He wanted the guy to get right the way through. So I said to him, what's going on then in your, in your, in your spirit when you pray for people? He said, well, when I come and lay hands on somebody, the first thing I do, I don't say anything, I wait. He said, and I get an impression of what their faith is like by the Spirit. And he said, he said, I visualize it like a landing strip at an airport. He says, the longer the landing strip, the bigger plane you can land on it. He said, some people have got a landing strip that's like, you know, you could put a jumbo jet down on, and other people have got a helicopter pad, just a little square. And some people have got a short runway that's, you know, that's just like a, you know, you can put a, a little single-engine Piper Cherokee down or something like that. And he said, sometimes God wants to land this gigantic 747 jumbo jet full of healing and power on that person's life, and they're just putting out a runway that's about this long. They'll be lucky to get a little single-engine airplane on it. God wants to do this much, but their landing strip is this much. And then you've got to coach their faith. This is what Jesus did to this guy. He says, well, come on, I've got to get you out of this atmosphere and I've got to get you in a place of more faith because God is coming to land a jumbo jet of healing from blindness on you, but right now your runway is only about sort of two meters long because you're living in a, in, a, in, a, in a town where nobody's got a runway at all. And we have to be aware of that. When you want to pray for the sick, you want to do something good, lay hands on people, first thing you do when you lay hands on them is, Holy Spirit, how big a runway have we got here? And you'll start to feel it. You'll start to feel, oh, we're only going to get a glider down today or a parachute or something like that. And then the person's disappointed. But, you know, don't leave them like that. Coach their faith. Encourage them. So, well, Holy Spirit, how do I speak faith into this person's life? 
You notice what Jesus did? He took him out of the town. We're witnessing the guys on the street. And their mates are all making fun. What do you do? You take the guy away from his mates. Come over here, man. I'm going to pray for you away from them. Isn't that what Jesus did when the crowd were all laughing at him? Because don't weep, she's only sleeping. And they all laughed. He's right, well, you guys are all outside. I'm going in there with Peter, James, and John and the parents. That's all we're having because they're the only ones that are going to help create any faith in this thing. But you see, Jesus had to operate under the same circumstances. And so do you. Thank you, John. Well, to conclude with, there's three kinds of people in this story. Jesus, who uses his sixth sense, and he does it so well, and he coaches the man on how to use his sixth sense. There's the blind man who's sort of partway there. He's got some faith, but he ends up seeing men walking like trees, uh, even at the best of it. And he really does need further help in his faith. And praise God he gets there. And then there's the people of Bethsaida, who have their five senses so swamped with the things of this world, they can't even get to using their sixth sense. Here's my conclusion. Which one of these three do I want to be like?